Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson from the ministry staff at Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Easter Sunday, April 9, 2023. Today's message title, Death and Taxes. They would remember a king and say, it's been 32 years since this one has been reigning on the throne. And yet after Jesus' arrival, there's been one king that we compared all of human history to. He literally comes in and splits human history in two before his arrival and after his arrival. The one king that has an impact on everything else. And you could say a lot about Easter by allegorizing the death of Jesus. After all, he is our savior, but also he is our example. We can say, you know, ah, battles are won, but sometimes battles are hard, right? Many of us want victories and yet few of us want the battles. And we could take the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and and we could allegorize that that victory is not costumes. We we can see an empty grave and we can allegorize that. That first we have to see a cross before we see a grave. We can see through Jesus' life that suffering is not reserved simply for those who deserve it, but also for the righteous who endure it anyways. But even though the story of Jesus his suffering, his death and resurrection could speak to our current situations, our current future and our current suffering or future suffering. True hope is found not by allegorizing this story, but the reality of the story. Today for the Easter sermon, I want to dwell on Mark chapter 16, verses one through eight. And I'm going to give this, give this sermon a weird title. It's called Death in Texas. Uh, not tax taxes. Not I, I feel like I'm saying the state Texas and in a very southern action. No death and taxes. Uh, as I was praying and thinking through the resurrection of Jesus and, and this narrative of the women coming to the tomb, I thought of a quote by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, he's on. He's on. What is he? A hundred dollar bill? Right. Like, what about in American history? Right. He's. I think he actually created the whole bill, bill system, if I remember correctly. But I remember he, he gave his final remarks on the U.S. Constitution. And he put it this way. He, he liked the Constitution a lot, but he put it this way. Our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. Very cynical outlook of life. <laughs> uh, he hoped the Constitution would endure, but... Nothing is certain except for death and taxes. Well, I find it very interesting that the death of Jesus in one sense does away with both death and taxes. <laughs> um, now let's start with the taxes part because that's the less obvious one. So what we talked about last week was Jesus, how he wasn't the king that the people expected or wanted even, but rather he came in as the king that they needed. Again, he didn't come on a war horse. He didn't come to establish a political revolution. He came on a donkey to die on a cross. And they didn't even need, you know, their 
most urgent need were these pesky wilderness around them. They needed political freedom. They needed a revolution. Little did they know they needed something way, way more. There were multiple expectations of the Messiah coming for political freedom, for military victory, but instead he came to die on a cross. And we talked about how different the King Jesus is because in most of human history, if not all of human history, when you include Jesus, the Kings are the ones who send their people to die for them in battles. And yet here comes the King to die for his people in a battle, right? And, and he is the one who dictates what they should do to serve him. And yet here comes a king and he is serving his people. And I started thinking about this, this Benjamin Franklin quote up here, because taxes, when you think about it, they exist for kingdoms and governments because they need some money to function, right? They need to pay for police and military and armies and, and uh, you know, salaries of governors and royalties. And, you know, they, they really need those palaces, right? Am I right? Amen? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but again, Jesus comes in as a different type of king, not to seek what he was owed or what he deserved. He deserved all praise. He deserved all honor. Now he, as he puts it in his own words in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus displays his service, not only through his willingness to die on a cross for our sins, to take on our penalty and our debt so that we could have life. But even in his last night alive, he served his disciples by washing their feet. I saw someone posted on Twitter, like how often have we played the game? What would you do if you had one day left to live, right? What would you do? Go skydiving? Eat a bunch of McDonald's if you didn't live in Iceland, right? Eat a bunch of Metro, doesn't sound really cool. <laughs> what would you do? Eat a bunch of junk food, go to the movies, I don't know. What's Netflix? Man, I'm not really creative in what I would do in light of uh, sudden death in 24 hours. But, you know, yeah. you might play the game and be more creative than I am. Think about this, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him in 24 hours. And he spent his last day washing dirty feet. And I just saw that and I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's our King. That's our King washing feet while preparing to die on a cross for you and me. But he wasn't simply serving before his death, but even after his death, as we read in, in verses today, so would you stand with me if, as we read the first five verses here in Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. How, do you, how would you pronounce that? Salome? Salome? I love that we have different cultures going to fight over this one. Salome, I'm going to say it in Icelandic. Bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So let's 
sit down as we dwell just on this for a moment. Here, we come to the centerpiece of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. Jesus could have been born and arrived on the scene, but if it wasn't for his willingness to die and defeat death, we would have no hope or reason to even sing with joy today, with hope today. So Jesus could have come and teaching us revolutionary doctrines, giving endless insights with divine insight. And yet if he were not willing to go through this moment to die on our behalf, we might know what to do. We might know what is right, but we could have never been justified. His teaching would have simply been like standing on a seashore. You look far out to the sea and you see an island and you may, may look beautiful. It may look plentiful. But as long as you realize there's no way for you to get to there, that's just what it is. An object from afar. If Jesus would have come in as simply another philosopher, a great teacher, moral advice, that's all he would have been to you and me. Teaching us the ways of the kingdom of God. And yet here we would be stuck on the seashore, never able to arrive there because we've all failed, right? Can I get an amen to that? Is, that? is that a weird thing to say amen to? Yeah, we have failed. I think all of us have. We didn't need another warring king. We didn't need another great philosopher or teacher. Even if God himself would come and be these things for us, they would not do. We needed God to be a savior, a conqueror for us, the conquered. We needed the one who would kill death itself and resolve the problem we have, which is that we have all failed in our attempts to be good. And that has severed our relationship with God, leading to the broken and messed up world that we see around us. And if that was the end of the story, that would have been it. A broken life lived for an X amount of years and on to eternity with no hope. And yet, there's this desire Right, Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in our hearts. Right? Uh, is it uh, John Calvin who put it? Uh, you've created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's something within us that wants to be with our God because that's what we were created for. We want to be with our God who is a just judge. We want to be with him forever in heaven who is fully good and perfect in all of his ways. And yet here we are stuck on this seashore, unable to get to the promise on our own. How would we ever reach perfection if we have already failed? Why would a good God ever allow us eternal life with him if we have failed? And even if he wanted to grant us that, how would we not simply break eternity as we go there too with our problems, with our sins? And this has been said, all religions are the same. So many people have said it in so many different ways. All religions are the same, they say. And there are, to be sure, certain similarities between religions. Most of them agree on a lot of things that are good and a lot of things that are bad. Right? You shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't murder, and so on. And that is a glimpse of God's truth, to be sure. But when it comes to the attempt to answer basic questions like, hey, if we all agree on what is good and we all agree on what's bad, why don't we stop doing what's bad? And why don't we do what's good? It seems so basic, right? 
If we agree that good is something that we should strive for, how and why are we so good at being bad all the time? And how, if we are so bad, should we ever be given eternal life with an all good and holy God? After all, we have stolen, we have hated, we have lied, we have lusted, we have been sinfully angry. Some of us have been violent at times. We have been blasphemous, not only in what we say, but how we live. This, my friends, is the place where you start to see Christianity differ from every other world religion out there. And the difference starts with the focal point of the solution to your sin, to your badness, being Jesus. He didn't come to give you a recipe for a more moral life to get you into heaven. He didn't give you step to enlightenment or roadmap to paradise that you would have to navigate by your own power or or wisdom. No, he came as the very solution to your problem. The answer to our eternal problems is not found in trying harder or working smarter. We can't. The, the answer from the Christian perspective to your sin, to our sin, it's not self-improvement. It's a savior and it's Jesus. It's not your morality, not your obedience, not your surrender alone. No, but in Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect morality, his perfect obedience, even extending himself to be crucified on a cross as a sacrifice for you, for me. Solution to our sins is not trying harder, but receiving the goodness and forgiveness of Jesus. That then changes how you live. Your debt has been paid by another. Your shame has been carried by another. Your eternal life has been granted to you and bought with the price from another. And in Jesus, the answer. This is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Jesus dying so that we could live, suffering so that we could be healed, paying our debt, cleansing our sins and shame, and in that offering us to come to him as we are, with empty hands, nothing to bring to a king of any value except to receive from him. See, that's, that's what makes Jesus as a king so different. So we talked about kingdoms and governments before. What do they need? They need the support and generosity of their people to sustain them in their power. And yet here comes a king saying, no, I have come to give. Another weird reason, weird type of the kingdom of heaven where it's upside down. He says, come to me if you're weary, if you're broken from trying to find fulfillment and joy and identity in all the wrong places and all the wrong people to finally find rest in Jesus. And I love this about Jesus. He showed that he was the one, the acceptable sacrifice to show that he indeed was the killer of death, to show show that he was indeed full of of fancy ideas, just nice words that he shared with us. He came with receipt. (laughs) He came and showed himself to be alive after suffering death. We don't have a holy place to visit where the the body of Jesus lays. We have an empty tomb. But notice the women here in the text. I find it so interesting. Like, and you might read the gospels and you might, man, if I was there, I'd be totally different. I don't know. (laughs) Kind of, you know, after 2000 years of hearing the story of the risen savior, like I would have expected that guy to rise. I don't know. 
But notice the story of the people in this story. They've been around Jesus for years now. He has said, hey, my death is coming. I'm going to die on a cross. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again from the grave. And yet here we have these women and they're coming to the tomb and they're not expecting to see a risen savior. They're expecting to care for a rotting body. What are they thinking of? These women are not getting rid of what Jesus didn't do for them, but rather they're opposing to Jesus. They've brought their taxes to the king, not expecting the king to grant them his riches. They've brought the spices to care for the body. They're trying to put together a plan to roll away the stone for it. They're like, okay, I know we have the spices, the body. There's this stone. Who's going to roll it away and how are we going to do it? And they're trying to figure things out. And little do they know that this is going to be the most epic inside job of human history. <laughs> He's got a plan. He's got a plan. And yet this view of Jesus wasn't only how people used to think about him. I think this is still very prevalent today. I think it's called religion. A system of faith. People think that the thing is about religion. Man, it's about if you have the right system, if you do the right things and not about person. Like some of us in the church were reading a great book called A Praying Life. And one of the examples that he gives there is how we view prayer. And many of us, we, we think they're, they're so bad at praying because they can think about it. Like, how should I say the word? What order should they come in? And the author of the book was saying, no, have you ever thought about how you have a conversation with a friend? Do you ever think about the words that you're going to use before you go and meet that friend? Or do you just sit there with the friend and the words come naturally? <laughs> I was like, man, this is such a religious type of thinking, man, how am I going to say? Instead of wondering who I'm with, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? And yet we do this all the time. We think about a religion instead of a person, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Thinking, ah, oh, if I just come prepared enough, if I look impressive enough, if I pray hard enough, if I become moral enough, I can finally have something of value to bring to the king. And then finally he has to give me at least three answered prayers or something along those lines. Not knowing that Jesus asked you only to come to him weary from all of your trying and he will give you rest. He will give you riches from his riches, from what he has earned. Your and all the changes necessary to follow wow. as you are confronted and surrender to the love and the work of Christ. He offers you the gift of being made new, made free. And if you try to pay for it, you fail to understand what a gift is. <laughs> you ruin a gift if you try to pray for it. That's not a gift. You can't earn them. You can only receive them. But then we read on as the women enter the grave and they talk to the angel there. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. <laughs> uh, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went and fled from the tomb 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mikhail. <laughs> so, think about, think about this. Christianity is low-load around the world. What was it? Was it that the Christians were so well-equipped with swords or good at violence that they could spread their religion and force it on people? No. If you, if you know human history, for the first roughly 300 years of the, of the church, Christians were on and off persecuted and killed and tortured for being Christians. They were the ones who got to endure the violence, not the ones committing the violence. So what was it that made Christianity explode around the world? Was it an appealing philosophy? You know, was it like, oh, these are strange new ideas and it's kind of hip and cool to be a part of these Christian club. Nope. <laughs> you know what? You want to hear something interesting? When, when Jesus rose bodily from the grave, this was in a society where a philosophy known as Gnosticism was very popular. Gnosticism uh, revolved around this idea that to seek true enlightenment or secret knowledge and understanding, what you had to do was to get rid of the physical. So the whole point was, man, if I get rid of rid of that, I can finally get, gain true true knowledge in sickle. It's in secret insight, right? Gnosis is is knowledge, right? And and and. Here, if you're trying to think, man, okay, these guys came and they invented a new religion. They were appealing to the people, the popular ideas of the day. Why would you create a narrative in which the savior who had finally gotten rid of his body and now was truly enlightened, all of a sudden came back in a body? Again, it was not appealing to the philosophers of this time. So why did Christianity explode? Was it because they made up an awesome story, a great myth that people just couldn't help but buy into? No, wasn't that either. How many of you have read the gospels and wondered like how often the disciples are just not gonna get it? And guys, you keep not understanding what Jesus is trying to say to you guys. You keep acting like idiots. He's, he's talking about dying for you and you all of a sudden go to wondering who's the best among you, right? You're like, guys, what are you doing? So if you're going to create an awesome myth, why would you make the disciples of Christ look like God fools sometimes and kind of cowards at some time? Why? Or when you get to a passage like this, do you realize at this time and this day, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus are women? I may, may not seem like much to you guys today, but that was literally a popular argument to like make fun of Christians. Oh, there's nothing to your faith. You build your testimony on women. And we all know that they are like the philosopher in the second century Celsus put it like that sex is totally unreliable. So again, if you're going to create a myth, why would you make the disciples of Christ so often say the wrong things, think the wrong things, just totally not get it? And at times look like cowards. Why would you make the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus be women in a society where the testimony of women was not taken seriously? Either you're horrible at making up a myth or this is truth. So why did Christianity come off 
That's appealing to people. Like, think about this. Is it, did the disciples, this is what I thought for the longest time. I thought the disciples made the story up because they had financial incentive to do so. They just wanted to manipulate people. They wanted to make money. They wanted to be rich and famous. And this was the way to do it. And then you start to look at the life of the disciples and you find out that they all got rejected by their family and friends. They got persecuted and killed. (laughs) They were looked at as heretics and hunted by the Jews and hunted by the Romans. And you think, okay, that's not it. Why would they do this? What caused Christianity to explode was the truth of Christianity the truth of the power of God revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples changed from, from being cowards hiding in a room, Peter denying Christ as a servant girl was asking him if he was one of the disciples when they were crucifying Jesus to all of a sudden something happening that caused Peter, the coward, to stand in front of at least 3,000 people saying, you crucified the author of, of life. What, what happened? Or how about this and this? I don't know if, how many of you are from a Catholic background in here, right? So this might, this might trigger you a little bit. <laughs> but see, like Jesus had brothers, right? James, Jude, they were letters in the New Testament. And the interesting thing is in John chapter, I think, what is it? Chapter seven, verse five. The family of Jesus is hearing about the uproar that Jesus is causing in his life. And they don't even believe in him. They think he's losing it a little bit. And again, you might be like, oh, these guys just don't get it. But think about this. How much would it take for you to worship your older brother as God? I have an older brother. It would would take quite a lot. (laughs) For one, a perfect life in which he has not been a great brother. Let me just say that. No, I'm just kidding. What would it take? And then to see James, the brother of Christ, go from not believing in his ministry while he's alive to all of a sudden being one of the head guys in the church in Jerusalem. Write a letter in your Bible right now. As uh, you see, one of the historians of the early Christianity talks about him being told to deny Christ and being thrown off the temple, not dying from falling off the temple and then being beaten to death until he finally died. And he refused to, to say that his brother was not God. What would it take? It took a resurrection. He has defeated death. He's proven, therefore, that his words are not just words. His ideas are not just great new ideas, but look, Look at what the angel says to the women. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Get ready for this. He is risen. He's not here. Too many people seek what they need in Jesus in the wrong place. Right? Tell his disciples, he says, and Peter, that he goes, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. (laughs) Again. Guys, he's told you this before. The plan was to rendezvous with Galilee after the crucifixion three day day. Tell, tell the disciples. Why did they go to the grave? Even as Jesus had told them that he would rise and 
they would meet in Galilee. Why did they go to the grave? Was it because it sounded too good to be true? Sounded like a Hollywood movie script? Oh, the heroes died. And no, no, the heroes awake and living and everything is fine. Well, is this a story that ends like a Hollywood movie? Or do Hollywood movies end the way they do because our hearts yearn for this story? Where death doesn't have the final say. And perhaps we yearn for that because God has placed it there as Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity on our heart. Could it be that we struggle with the same thing that these women struggle with? This is all too good to be true. We cling to religion instead of the person of Jesus because saved by grace through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, just sounds too simple. Sounds too good. So I have to do something to earn this grace. But that's not grace. That's not gift. Or maybe some of you are like me. You struggle to see how God plans to use someone as ordinary and plain as you to leave an eternal impact on anything and anyone around you. You'd rather not dream or step out on a limb of what God may be calling you to because that would be risking it, risking getting hurt. So you just hold back and stick with the grave instead of Galilee. Better to not get your hopes up and to dream and then be crushed. Or maybe you're in here and you're not even a Christian and you're too afraid to have hope. You see the ways you failed and think that, man, this sounds way too good to be true. To think of Jesus alone was able to cleanse you of your guilt, your, the power of shame. I'm going to stick with the grave. I've been there too. And the thing about this message, it's simple. Not easy. The disciples called this a stumbling block. Why? Because it requires us to give up on ourselves and say, I'm not enough. There's a whole industry around self-improvement. You can do it. (laughs) All about you. You deserve this. What's hard is to say, I can't do this on my own. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't ever win on that scoreboard. How many of you have been in a financial situation in which you needed help? 50 bucks, 100 bucks, right? Wow, five of us? Come on, that's... And like, we're mostly like in leadership in this church, so I think we should switch roles. <laughs> Man, have you ever had someone give you money and just realize how difficult it is to simply receive? That's simple. Just take the money, right? It's not hard. And yet it is. This faith is simple. It's not about you. It's not about your morality. It's not about how fast you can run, how much you can pray, how much you can stop, how much you can do. It's about about what Christ has already done. And that's simple. (laughs) It requires bending those stubborn knees to just say, thank you. I'll receive. And yet, I think many are more comfortable to just, no, that's too good to be true. I'll stick with the grave. This thing about Galilee and him being alive sounds too good to be true. 
And here's what I love. If you think, man, if you're in here and you're not a Christian and you thought to yourself, okay, this sounds too good to be true because you don't know the messed up stuff I've said or done. It's easy to talk about sin in general terms, but you don't know how messed up I really am. Easy to talk about wiping the slate clean, but you don't know. I've, I've been there. And the guy who wrote two thirds of the New Testament probably struggled with this because his former job was to kill Christians. Right? I imagine that he felt very unworthy to receive grace and forgiveness through Christ. But I love this because notice in verse seven in our text, he says, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. I find that very interesting because, well, Peter is a part of the disciples, so then <laughs> why would he say the disciples and, and Peter, you know, just in case you forgot that guy. Well, just moments earlier, a few days earlier, Peter, when Jesus was being tried, Peter was the guy who denied him three times. And I, I wonder, is the angel saying, tell his disciples and Peter, to meet him at Galilee because Peter might be struggling with that very issue that so many of us struggle with. I'm not worthy to get anything from Jesus. He may be a savior to others, but you don't know my sin. You don't know how I've failed. And yet here's the angel saying, get the disciples and get that fool Peter as well. (laughs) He's invited. Christ is not calling us to the grave that is open. It's defeated. He calls us to Galilee, Joshua, to tell tellers of him. It's not too good to be true, the work of Christ. It is too good and true at the same time. So why would we not give our lives to him? Why would we not tell others of him? He invites us just as he invites the women to come see the resurrection, the disciples to come see him resurrected in Galilee. So as we started out, there are two certainties in life, their death and taxes, as Ben Franklin said, and here's a king who demands no taxes, but he gives from his riches. And here's a king who overcame death. And you may experience bodily death, but because of what Christ has done, you will now in this body and after this body decays, you will experience eternal life. And that joy, that hope is not found just like after you die. That hope is found today. Now you may experience taxation for a few more years from less wealthy kings and governments who need to be supported by your generosity, but for eternity, you will be the one upheld and supported by your king as he does in this life as well. And the question is simply, will you accept the gift of freedom? Will you accept new life and eternal life that Jesus is offering you by the cross and the empty grave? And for you, Christian brother or sister, will you step out and take Jesus at his word? Will you trust to go to him with Gal- to Galilee instead of sticking with the grave? And if you do, if you're in here and you've accepted Jesus Christ, what we do every week is we remember his body being broken for us and his there's blood being shed for us. The point of this is to remember what fuels us as we go into this week 
as we continue to worship with our lives, this is what is the centerpiece of the Christian faith, not what you have to offer, but rather what Christ has already done. I'm not here to sell you on things that Christ can do for you in the future, but rather what he's already done in the past. He has made you his own. So if you're in here and you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've accepted the gift of salvation from Jesus and you say, my life is yours. I want you to remember with us, the blood of Christ, his body that was broken for us. And just as drink and, and, and food vein this body for a few more years. So this reality sustains us for all of eternity. And if you're in here and you're not a Christian, please don't participate with us in this. It would simply be a mockery of, of Christ. But I'm glad that you're here. And I hope, if not today, that you would surrender your life to Christ because there's nothing more valuable in life that I or anybody else could offer you. And if not today, I will pray. One of these days, I will see you confess Jesus Christ, experience the joy and hope in Jesus Christ. And uh, when you're ready to take that step, if you're ready to take that step, I would love to pray with you and talk with you. But let's get ready for singing. Um, Let me just pray for us. And during this song, we're going to partake of communion and remember Christ together. So let me pray. Father, we praise you for all that you've done. We praise you for your grace. We thank you for everything that you've done. You are wonderful. Be with us as we gather here today and as we go into this week. Be with us and glorify yourself in and through us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.